0: Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajjan Gohel, and in this episode, I speak with the noted academic Mahmoud Cengiz about the various geopolitical challenges that have erupted across the Middle East and Afghanistan, Pakistan. Mahmoud is an associate professor with the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center and the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Mahmoud is also the author of The Illicit Economy in Turkey, How Criminals, Terrorists, and the Syrian conflict fuel underground economies. Mama Chengiz, warm welcome back to NATO Deep Dive. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you again. In light of the Hamas October 7, 2023 operation in Israel and the subsequent fallout across the Middle East, we've seen two distinct narratives being pushed out. One is from state actors such as Iran that has seen itself pushing the so-called axis of resistance. The other is from non-state actors such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. What are your thoughts on this in terms of these two very contrasting narratives?
1: The conflict in Palestine and Israel always has been seen as a reference case for for Jihadist terrorist organizations. Of course, after this attack, we have uh, debated who are the winners and who are the losers. Or who can exploit, you know, these attacks in the in the world, and the, we saw, for example, Iran is maybe aiming to again exploit these attacks and trying to show it like this is a war between the West and then the East. So Iran is like is in in a position, is trying to represent the Islamic world. So this is uh, their ideology. When it comes to non-state actors, of course, ISIS and Al Qaeda years used. Uh, the conflict in Palestine as a reference case. Of course, there are some other ones in Jammu and Kashmir in India, also in Africa. So whenever they saw the persecutions over Muslim communities, like some overreactions from the state actors. So they created some stories and they just began to exploit. And then uh, these stories and because they aim to radicalize uh, more people because it means that the, the more people are radicalized. So it means that they can recruit more and more people. So after the Hamas attacks, now it is beyond like being a regional conflict, because in some platforms it is seen as like the war again between the West and also the Islamic world. I think uh, for the Western world, there are some lessons uh, similar to 9-11 attacks, because we should really confine this, you know, this conflict like one group who is using a terrorist tactic, like Hamas, because Hamas acted like ISIS or Al Qaeda. Because Hamas acted and did a terrorist attack in in the region, but when it comes to its you know its results and its unintended consequences, always uh, the state and non state actors they position themselves to benefit from and to exploit these conflicts. So far, uh, what happened in, in in the region, like Al Qaeda or ISIS, you know again showing this conflict against Islam. Of course, again, Iran's like uh, aiming to to get another uh, leading position for the Islamic world.
0: These are really important points that you're covering here. If we stick to Iran for a second, so ISKP, the regional uh, affiliate of ISIS, uh, Islamic State, Khorasan province, they claimed responsibility for the twin blasts on January 4th, 2024, that killed 84 people and wounded scores of others, which was near the memorial of the former head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, Qasem Soleimani. That was in Kerman in Iran. What are your thoughts of that attack? What does this tell us about what is unfolding?
1: In, in my article, a recent article, I tried to question about who is the perpetrator. Because ISIS was one of the most reliable organizations in its early years, in 2014, 2015, when it comes to claiming responsibility. But then when ISIS began to lose power, the organization jumped for every notable attacks, even criminal ones, and they show that they are the perpetrators. So it's a big question how much we can rely on the academic responsibility by ISIS. Even there are some discrepancies in ISIS's statement because ISIS was saying that in the early hours, 300 people killed by two suicide bombers. But when we look at the details of this attack. So we saw that just 80 people lost their lives. And also, you know, remotely controlled, like uh, explosives uh, used in this attack. So these big discrepancies are showing us and also are creating some questions that whether ISIS really is the the perpetrator. Of course, on the other hand, why ISIS is claiming responsibility, it means again, uh, for ISIS that uh, maybe it, it created a chance and the opportunity for isis again to be a popular organization because those organizations are always seeking for this popularity they know well that it means like more recruitment more funding for these uh, organizations and uh, for uh, for iran again uh, it's a question because iran uh, blamed the western world israel and the us like masterminding this this attacks in the in the region and it is really very complex, very confusing. But on the other on the other hand, uh, ISIS uh, maybe KP they target you know these uh, civilians, like crowds. So we saw in the previous years how ISIS targeted you know and did some attacks in Afghanistan, like targeting mosques or some religious gatherings. So in terms of the tactics, yes, it is fitting well. Uh, ISIS KP's tactics and the target types. But when it comes to what's happening in the region, in Iran, also these complex relationships in the in the region, I can tell that it's a question, and uh, I don't think that we will be learning, you know, in the future who is the real perpetrator uh, behind these attacks in the in the region.
0: Yes, as you say, it is very complex, and uh, if we keep that complexity in mind, so back in January of 2024, we've seen that Iranian militias. Uh, or Iranian-backed militias, I should say, have carried out uh, attacks across uh, Syria and Iraq uh, on US uh, installations, uh, military installations. And one in particular was an attack uh, on a US military base in Jordan, Tower 22, as it's called. So we've seen that uh, Shia militia groups that have uh, targeted Uh, the U.S. in Iraq and Syria, but this was the first time that it happened in uh, Jordan. Uh, What does this tell us about the agenda of these uh, Iranian-backed Shia militia groups, and is this something that is going to continue, or is this perhaps an aberration of what happened in in Jordan?
1: We have discussed uh, some of the consequences of Hamas's attacks, October 7th attacks. Also, I think another consequence is now the world is aware of uh, existing these militia-backed groups in almost every country in the Middle East. So even these militia groups in Iraq and in Syria, they are more threatening than ISIS and Al-Qaeda because these militia groups targeted American bases and the facilities more than ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So these groups are active in several uh, Middle Eastern countries. For example, in, in Iraq... Uh, popular mobilization forces. It was a big umbrella group and uh, consisting of like more than 100 Iran-backed militia groups. So we saw several of them are really active, like Qatar Hezbollah, and also uh, some others as well. So in Syria, uh, again, there is a strong presence of these Iran-backed militia groups. So Liwa Fatimion and uh, composed of Afghan Shias, and uh, they, uh, they were trained and then transferred from IRGC to Syria. I think just to fight for uh, Bashar al-Assad because Iran is taking the side of uh, the al-Assad regime and uh, also aiming to maintain Bashar al-Assad in his position. So there was another, for example, well-known and a popular group in Syria, uh, which is Libra Zainabiyun. So they are the Pakistani. shias again, the same method by IRGC, training and transferring them to, 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 to Syria just to fight against uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or another group, other group know, targeting Bashar al-Assad group. So when we look at Yemen, there are Houthis, but after Hamas' October 7th attacks, these militia groups, they came together, uh, six of them. So they created an umbrella organization, which is Islamic Resistance in Iraq group. So this group was a perpetrator of uh, the attack in Jordan and uh, targeting uh, US forces. So for your question, considering their current capacity, operational capacity in the region it wouldn't be wrong to say that in the long term these groups will keep attacking uh, the western forces including us forces because they aim to drive these forces out of the middle east and uh, also we are we are aware of like this ongoing and current like regional level uh, cold war between saudis and iranians so they just you know target each other to be the regional hegemon and uh, so far, Iran seems to be the winner. So they are really, you know, uh, active and dominant. Also, in some cases, they are using these militia-backed groups, like uh, their strategy. So, uh, in the in the future, we will see more attacks and more threats, especially coming from these Iran-backed militia groups. By the way, also in in terrorism databases, uh, in the last two years, six percent of terrorist attacks globally were committed by Iran-backed militia groups, which accounted for like five or 600 uh, attacks every year. But this year after Hamas's attacks, I believe it will be much higher because Hamas and Hezbollah also really very active also this year after Hamas attacks. So including Iran's linkages with uh, the groups in Palestine and also Hezbollah and some other uh, regional and local level militia groups, it wouldn't be wrong to say that we will see increasing you know, uh, numbers of attacks by these Iran-backed militia groups in the Middle East.
0: Well, one of the uh, entities that's getting more and more attention is this uh, Iran-backed uh, Shia militia group known as the Kataib uh, Hezbollah, who are considered to be part of the, the movement that targeted the uh, Tower 22 uh, in, in Jordan. What do we know about this group, uh, are they similar to Hezbollah in Lebanon? Uh, they seem to certainly model themselves on, yeah. on that. Are there any differences
1: that we should be aware of? They, 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 are, they are really similar because Iran is using the same model. Uh, Hezbollah maybe also is seen like a success model for Iran because it was formed in 1982. And uh, today Hezbollah is a global organization. According to some some. Some people, they are like a political organization, but we have seen their you know, uh, strong involvement in criminal activities. So you can see how Hezbollah is part of global networks. I think uh, in Latin America, like in cocaine and cigarette trafficking or drug trafficking. Also, on the other hand, uh, they are based in Lebanon. So Hezbollah, for example, uh, after Hamas' attacks, uh, terrorism databases recorded 238 attacks from Hezbollah. But it was like ten or eight before October seventh attacks. But then the world saw how this organization is capable of you know doing attacks in the region. So just copying this success model, Kataeb Hezbollah, because this is the Iraqi branch in uh, in Iraq. Of course, it's another question to see how Iran is influential on Iraqi politics uh, after the you know U.S. invasion uh, after two thousand three. So we saw increasingly how Iran has become influential. And today, uh, Iran is influential on the government and also there are these militia groups. And then uh, also I think uh, the, PMF, the PMF, Popular Mobilization Forces. Actually, PMF got some sympathy when they're fighting against, against uh, ISIS. But then Qatab Hezbollah and some others left from PMF. And uh, today they operate independently. So in the future, I believe there will be another Hezbollah, uh, mostly operating and based in Iraq.
0: We're having a quite a detailed discussion on all the entities that uh, Iran is uh, supporting by proxy. So if we continue that discussion, another group are is, of course, the Houthis uh, that are based in Yemen. They seem to have been very effective in hurting global trade, especially the vessels that travel through the Red Sea. What can be done, uh, Mahmoud, to to deal with that? Can countries like China that have good ties with Iran help to resolve that? Or is this something that the Houthis have now realized is a successful tactic to hurt the global economy uh, and use it for their own propaganda purposes also?
1: Yeah, Houthis uh, also, they're successful, you know, uh, Operating in Yemen because they seized the capital Sana'a, in Yemen in 2014, but after that, Houthis is able to control a territory in in uh, in Iran, uh, sorry in in Yemen. So there are like Saudi-led coalition forces, I think uh, composed of more than 10 states, but uh, they all failed, you know, just to fight against Houthis in in the region. So recently, as you just mentioned, they targeted. Uh, the commercial ships in the on the on the Red Sea, so this then there happened some uh, debates in the United States about whether designation, uh, whether to designate Houthis again as a as a terrorist organization. Uh, also, there are another group you know uh, controlled and directed by by Iran, so mostly serving the interests of Iran in the region. I don't think that in the short term we will see you know. Some effective results to fight against or to stop their uh, their fighting or their targetings uh, in the uh, in Yemen and also in the Middle East. So recently, uh, U.S. government uh, put Houthis in the list of specifically designated terrorist organizations. So we will see again some sanctions uh, over Houthis. But when it comes to fighting uh, against Houthis, I don't think that uh, in the near future we will see some effective fight against Buddhists.
0: So this is obviously going to be another ongoing problem and, and challenge. You've also written uh, on Al-Qaeda's affiliates and that they are growing. They are potentially causing uh, a global challenge in terms of their agenda. We've seen that AQAP in Yemen, another uh, faction uh a non-state actor, although this is a Sunni jihadist group based in Yemen uh, that is seeking to cause disruption in the light of everything that's happening in the Middle East. They've restarted the Inspire series uh, of online guidance to to terrorism and propaganda, which is of concern. Which of Al-Qaeda's affiliates um, are concerning you? And why do you think they've become so emboldened?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, in the Western world, there is a common belief about jihadist organizations. So ISIS and Al-Qaeda, like they are different organizations, so they are not any more threats to the Western world. But when we look at terrorism databases, every year, 1300, more than 1,300 terrorist attacks were committed by ISIS and its affiliated organizations. So uh, every year, more than 800 uh, terrorism incidents were committed again by, by Al-Qaeda, and its affiliated organizations. So, when it comes to uh, answering your question, so what's Al Qaeda groups? Of course, be, before that, there are currently uh, Al Qaeda affiliates uh, operating in, in many regions. So, there is one in, uh, in Syria, HTS, Hayatollah al Sham. Actually, Al Qaeda used more localization policies and merged local jihad organizations and created like umbrella organizations. Uh, to fight for Al Qaeda's ideology in many regions, so HTS is like one example. Merged by jihadist organizations, more than ten groups came together, then created HTS in Syria. So HTS is a defeated organization or not? Uh, when you look at uh, databases, so you can see every year HTS is the perpetrators of more than two hundred cases. Even today, HTS is able to control territory in uh, in Idlib in Syria. But last year, what we saw, so there have been some fragmentations from HDS. So several of its militants left the organization then began to operate independently. So we should be giving our focus and attention on HTS in Syria. Uh, there's another one in in the Sahel. Of course, it is more related to uh, grievances of the Muslim communities in Africa. Of course, it's related to the impacts of like post-military coups in, in this uh, in in some Sahel countries, so we saw how these issues uh, are creating some security vacuums, and then how immediately these organizations are filling out these vacuums and operating in the in this region. So for the Sahel, for Africa, uh, Jamal al al Muslimin, the acronym JAM, is really very active. So recently, for example, this group spread its operational capacity to neighboring countries of. Uh, Sahel, like Togo and Benin. And also increasingly we saw JNM's attacks in Burkina Faso and Niger Niger as well. So we should be giving our focus on JNIM as well. And there's another one, uh, Al-Shabaab in Somalia. So this is another uh, top terrorist organization uh, every year, like one of the top groups with the most terrorist incidents. Even though there happened some decreases in the number of terrorist attacks by Al-Shabaab, but when, when you look at its tactics, so you can see more complex tactics have been used by these organizations, like uh, vehicle-borne IEDs or suicide bombings, again, used by al Shabab. So complexities of tactics and also spreading of uh, JNM in, in Africa, I can tell that we should give our focus on these two Al-Qaeda groups in Africa. And uh, on the other hand, AKP is another one. I think uh, this group were active, like, uh, doing attacks, several hundred attacks in 2016 or 2017. But in terrorism databases, today, this organization, like, is the perpetrator of several tens of uh, incidents. But uh, as you mentioned, like, online propaganda, and then we saw, again, you know, some increasing activities of AKP. Maybe last point, uh, in Asia, in, Af- in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, because I think we should talk about maybe Lashkar Taiba or target uh, Taliban Pakistan, TTP. So they are, again, two active organizations, which really, do know, uh, require attention. And uh, we need to look at, again, these two groups as well in Pakistan.
0: Yeah, so these are important regions that you're identifying where non-state actors affiliated to Al-Qaeda continue to operate with impunity and uh, pose major challenges, uh, not just locally, regionally, but maybe transnationally as well. Talking about transnational. So another thing, Mahmoud, that you've been covering and analyzing is the whole fentanyl smuggling challenge and crisis that exists. Uh, Now, fentanyl being a narcotic, uh, of course, what can be done uh, about it? And what are the current developments in trying to stop the... Mm -hmm proliferation and and smuggling off uh, fentanyl. Uh, And are there any particular countries, regions that concern you uh, about where the fentanyl is moving around and and how it's being trafficked?
1: Yeah. I think sometimes we are all focused on terrorism. In terrorism cases, we are recording every year like 25,000 people killed. But when you look at fentanyl and the drug issue uh, in the world, just in the U.S., I think last year, 100, more than 100,000 people lost their lives because of overdoses for fentanyl. So, who is bringing, who is transferring this fentanyl for the U.S. case? Uh, you can see uh, Mexican cartels are blamed because from the southern border, these Mexican cartels they traffic and transfer this fentanyl uh, from Mexico to, to the U.S. So, what other states are involved? and therefore precursors of uh, fentanyl. And we know that China is a a source country, so these precursors uh, have been transferred to to Mexico. Then in primitive labs in Mexico, they are just produced and then transferred to the US. So when it comes to how we can prevent, this is a really complex issue because we need multi-perspective approaches, like protecting the borders, of course, fighting against transnational criminal organizations, global cooperation between the states, but considering current politics in the world. So it is not likely to see effective cooperation between US and China. Uh, US is a destination country, but China is a source country. So these challenges are just creating more and more opportunities for criminal organizations. So that's why they, they just enjoy you know, transferring these materials and they're killing people, but on the other end, uh, making millions of dollars from this type of trafficking
0: and contributing to global misery as well um so this has been a, a very a sobering discussion that we've been having on a wide range of uh, security issues from terrorism state actors non-state actors and of course uh, narcotics uh, Mohammed, let me Uh, Thank you again for providing this uh, very important and timely uh, analysis and continue to read all your articles and important research and uh, look forward to uh, what you'll be doing in the future as well.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting
0: me. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andriopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.